It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm joined by Professor of Public Policy at Queen Mary University, Patrick Diamond, to discuss Labour's civil wars. So I'm delighted to be joined on today's New Statesman podcast by Patrick Diamond, Professor of Public Policy at Queen Mary University of London. He was Senior Policy Advisor to the Prime Minister in 2001 to 2005 and Head of Policy Planning in Downing Street 2009 to 10. He has written a book with Giles Radici, the Labour peer and former MP, Labour's Civil Wars, How Infighting Has Kept the Left From Power and What Can Be Done About It. Patrick, I was going to say this book was timely, but I suppose you could always have said it was timely since the creation of the Labour Party. The history of the Labour Party can be written around the civil wars that have engulfed it at various periods. So yes, it is a theme that has been recurrent in Labour's history, but obviously remains very relevant in the present day. Okay, and so why did you feel that you wanted to write this book? What was it that... Was, were you frustrated from your time working new works under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown as well? A time of division? Yeah, so we started thinking about the book actually during the period of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership because mm-hmm. obviously that was a time in the Labour Party when there was a lot of division clearly between in particular the parliamentary wing of the party and the leadership and also the grassroots. And I think what really struck us was, yeah, there were some new features to that in terms of the politics around Jeremy Corbyn. But in many ways, the underlying issues were ones that have been repeated at various junctures throughout Labour's history. So the book looks at some of the differences, but also the similarities between the divisions that have broken out in Labour and how we can understand and explain those better. And you find those common sources of conflict, don't you? I'll lay them out. Institutional structure. So the Labour Party isn't just one thing. It's the trade union movement, the parliamentary party and the grassroots. And you saw those divisions under Jeremy Corbyn particularly strongly. Conflicting ideological aims, and perhaps you can go more into that and disagreement over political strategy. So basically, is the Labour Party there to win elections is one of the questions. Can you talk a bit about those conflicting ideological aims? Because I think under recent leaderships, whether it's Keir Starmer, Corbyn or Ed Miliband, there has been this division right at the very top over what the Labour Party is supposed to stand for. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think those have been present since the foundation of the party in the very early 20th century. There's always been this disagreement both about the ideological aims of the party. For example, is its aim to nationalise industry and bring it under 
understate control, or is it rather to work with the grain of the market economy, but to use mechanisms like the welfare state to redistribute wealth? There's also been, as you said, a division around the fundamental question of political strategy. Is Labour a party that aims to win power in a parliamentary democracy, or is it primarily a social movement and a party of protest that exists to foment opposition towards capitalism and establish power? And I think there has always been a disagreement in the Labour Party about that choice. And you can see it very much in the present day, particularly around the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and into the Keir Starmer period. It's also important to say, though, and we reflect on this in the book, that clearly personalities have also played a role. So ideology matters, the institutional structure of the party matters, as you say, but also just the the egoisms, the jealous, the hatreds that break out between rival politicians, these have also played a role, I think, in intensifying and deepening conflict. And that's something we saw particularly graphically, I think, in the period when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were at the top of the party, when maybe the ideological differences were less pronounced, but obviously the personality differences were very much present. Mm, And obviously, we've got a Tory leadership campaign going on at the moment. Would you say that egoism and that toxicity between characters is limited to the Labour Party in politics? By no means. And as we say in the book, Labour isn't the only party to, in a sense, suffer recurrent civil wars. Obviously, if you look at the history of the modern Conservative Party, particularly over the issue of Europe, it's also a very divided party. But there's something particularly about Labour, and I think it goes back to your point about the institutional structure, because there's always been this difference between the parliamentary wing, the trade unions, and the grassroots activists. That has always structured conflict into the basic foundations of the party, and Labour's found it very difficult to escape that. Whereas I think the Conservatives, to some extent, have always had in their DNA a will to win, and a will to do whatever is necessary pragmatically to achieve power. Labour isn't quite the same kind of party, and so that also helps to explain the kind of civil wars that have broken out at so many points in the party's history. Okay, so let's talk a bit about those tensions between the trade union movement and the parliamentary party. We're seeing that playing out at the moment with Keir Starmer equivocating basically over whether or not he wants his shadow cabinet ministers to join workers on picket lines. Clearly, they haven't got the line quite clear over how they feel about strikes. Is that something that I can remember under Ed Miliband as well? Is that something common to your experience of the Labour Party? Or do you think it's coming to a head now when you have a leader who is so determined to shed any of the baggage of the past administration? No, it's definitely, I think, been a feature of Labour's history that there's been this conflict at various junctures between whether trade unions want to go and whether party leadership wants to go. One of the chapters of the book explores the period of government when Labour was in power in the late 1920s and early 1930s, which obviously led to the fall of the McDonald government. Mm. But in many ways, the issues there were about a conflict between what the government and many of its MPs wanted to do in a situation of very grave economic Uh, crisis and what the trade unions wanted to do which was very much to defend the interests of their members and so where you have a party that has the trade unions constitutionally part of the party but with their own economic interests I think there's always bound to be this scope for conflict and I think that came out in the very recent events that you mentioned in terms of this disagreement about whether shadow cabinet ministers should appear on picket lines what should their relationships with the trade unions be and obviously you can see on both sides the strength of the argument Hmm. the trade unions want Labour politicians to be visibly backing them particularly at a time when you've got squeezed wages and very real conflicts around the workplace but at the same time Starmer's position is very much to be a responsible party of power trusted by the public we can't support every strike that comes along and we need to be more disciplined so yeah this conflict has perhaps taken on a new intensity given the current crisis of living standards and trade union conflict but it's very much been again a present feature of Labour's history. Okay and having worked under two Labour leaders and also written about the Labour Party since its inception do you think Starmer's got the line about right or how do you think he's doing in terms of that conflict? It's obviously a difficult line to tread 
In the end, I think, though, that if Labour is serious about government, it does need to show that it will take a disciplined approach on issues like wage negotiations. And it's difficult because clearly some of the striking workers have a very good case to make. But it's probably better if that case is made by the trade unions and by their members than it is by the Labour Party, as I say, trying to join in every piece of industrial action, which would send the message to voters that perhaps Labour lacked the discipline to take tough decisions in government. And that's the balance that Labour has to strike. Yes, it can be the party of Labour. Yes, it can be the party of workers. But in power, it has to govern for the whole country. And therefore, it has to remember that some voters may take a different view of a government that appeared to be um, unwilling to take those tough decisions, particularly on economic issues. Mm. So I think in the end, Starmer is right if he wants to win power at the next election to take a very clear and disciplined position. Right. Okay. And in general, we've speak, we've been speaking about this a lot on the New Statesman mm. podcast because he said to us in an interview fairly recently that he was wiping the slate clean and scrapping that manifesto from the Corbyn era from the 2019 general election. And that's angered a lot of people on the left. And of course, he has been distancing himself from those leadership pledges that he made when he was trying to appeal to the membership when he was running to succeed Corbyn. Do you think, again, that's, a, that's another example of that strategy to try and win, which even that political aim is has been in contention in the Labour Party's history, if, uh, according to your book. Yes, certainly following defeat, there's always a tendency for the next Labour leadership to try and wipe the slate clean and in a sense draw a line under what happened in the recent past. We saw that very much after 2010 as the Labour governments of the post-97 period had been defeated and the new leader, Ed Miliband, wanted to strike a very different note and in a sense distance his leadership period from the new Labour period. Equally, as you say, Keir Starmer is trying to distance his own leadership from that of Jeremy Corbyn's, in part, I think, just because obviously Labour performed very badly in the 2019 election. So there's a sense that it has to offer something different. Also, perhaps the argument that things have moved on. Obviously, the pressures on the economy and public spending mean that it would be very difficult to offer the kinds of pledges that Labour offered in 2019 Mm. and appear in any way to be fiscally credible, given we know what's happening to inflation and public spending. It's no surprise, I think, that Keir Starmer should seek to do that. I think where he has to be cautious is not appearing to, in a sense, throw out the baby with the bathwater and abandon policies that may actually be popular. So, for example, I think Labour has to have a very hard thing about nationalisation and public ownership. As somebody who worked in the New Labour period, I would say it's not necessarily the case that Labour shouldn't support efforts to bring certain industries into public ownership. If it's clear, for example, that energy companies are profiteering and that there are major problems with the structure of those industries, then of course one should consider state ownership. So I think Labour has to be flexible. And we say in the book, the essence of the Labour Party when it's been successful is about applying its values to changing circumstances. And that does not mean ruling out policies like nationalisation simply because you think they may have been unpopular in the past. It requires being flexible and pragmatic. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. Obvious. 
and Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So do you think that's that's the line that Starmer's going to take? There, there are some concerns within the party that that there's a strategy just to sit back and watch the Conservatives tear each other apart. And then as a recession comes in, inflation rises, the country will be so dissatisfied with its leadership that it will have no other option but to opt for a Labour government. Do you think that kind of strategy works? I know that apparently, according to someone who is reading some old issues of the New Statesman, in 96, we were writing about how Tony Blair didn't have enough policies and he had to have a positive vision for the country. That's one of the the criticisms that's being levelled at Starmer now. What, What do you think of the balance between trying to create an alternative vision and just playing the politics of it. It's true and actually the other period that reminds me a lot of the current Starmer period is when John Smith was leader before Tony Blair and there were frequent criticisms of John Smith's style of leadership because he was seen as too pedestrian, Mm -hmm. not offering a sufficiently fresh vision and really counting on the fact that the growing unpopularity of the Conservatives would be enough to deliver a Labour victory. From my perspective, I think you can never do enough to demonstrate that you're ready for government. And I think there is a risk that Labour can lull itself into believing that the Conservatives' recent unpopularity will be enough to secure victory. Clearly it won't. The new leader of the Conservative Party, whether it's Elizabeth Truss or Rishi Sunak, is going to pose new challenges. And Labour is going to need to have its own distinctive policy offer and vision. And there is more work to be done in fashioning that. I think there is a sense that for all the progress that Keir Starmer has made in electoral terms, there is still a lack of clarity about what Labour's about, what it stands for. Mm -hmm. I think in some senses, going back to the themes we were discussing earlier, that is about trying to maintain party unity. I think Keir Starmer is relatively committed to trying to maintain a unified party and in so doing is perhaps reluctant to um, raise very difficult questions. The point that we make in the book is that is always a mistake, because if you don't confront the difficult issues in opposition, by the time you get into government, if you make it into government, then there'll be all sorts of potential conflicts whirring around that will explode, because in government it's very difficult, obviously, by definition. So you need to have the arguments now, and I think perhaps at times Labour's been too reluctant to do that. It needs to have an honest conversation about tax, about economic policy, about public spending priorities, and it needs to do it now rather than waiting 
to get into government. That's the ironic thing I found when I was reading your book, because while it's about Labour's divisions and how damaging they have been, it's also a bit of a defensive division, isn't it? It's, you should have to pick a fight with your party or factions in your party in order to, like you say, be in shape for government. Yes, and I think that was a reaction against this assertion that all political parties have to do is be united. That's a very obvious conclusion to draw. And of course, it's true that a very disunited party will clearly be vulnerable to electoral defeat. But at the same time, if you don't have a clear vision, if you don't have an ideological direction, if you don't have clear policies, then it is very likely that even if you were to achieve government by default, it would be very hard to achieve meaningful things in power. No, you're quite right. We are very sceptical of the idea that it's just about being united. Mm, Okay, and this might be a bit of a cheeky question, but who do you think would be the best or worst of the Tory candidates to win from the point of view of Keir Starmer looking ahead to a general election, whenever it may be? I think you could have said perhaps a month ago that Rishi Sunak did pose more of a challenge to Labour because he was seen by the public, at least by voters, as a more credible leadership figure. I have to say, as the leadership contest has gone on, in at least the way that I've observed it, the Truss and Sunak candidacies have rather merged together and they seem to be offering the same combination (laughs) of outlandish policies on tax cuts combined with these kinds of culture war attacks, which I think have relatively limited resonance with the electorate, even if perhaps they have more resonance with Conservative Party members. So to be honest with you, you might expect me to say this, I'm not massively convinced by either of them. That being said, they will pose a new challenge to Labour, and that means that Labour's got to really have its own story in order before the new leader is elected in September. And obviously this election has come about because they brought Boris Johnson down, something that the Labour Party is very bad at doing with its own leaders. There's a line in the book which is quite amazing. While it certainly has a tradition of loyalty which ensures Labour leaders are rarely, if ever, removed prematurely from office, George Lansbury is thus far the standout exception. Since its birth at the beginning of the 20th century, the party has constantly teetered on the brink of civil war. So, yeah, while it may be infighting, they're not very good at actually ousting their leaders. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that in the final phase of Tony Blair's leadership, Mm. he was brought to a point where resignation, or at least his stage resignation, was... Um, he had no alternative but to do it because the divisions in the party had grown to such an extent that he, he had to make that decision. But certainly, yes, it's very rare, as we say in the book, that Labour ever removes a leader who is perceived to be electorally unpopular. And that is clearly a distinction from the Conservative Party, because as we know from present events, the Conservatives are very willing to move against the leader who they think will lose them power. Okay, and from your time in Number 10, you obviously were viewing the Labour Party from a very different lens than you're viewing it now. While you were writing your book, was there anything you discovered about the party that you just hadn't thought of before that surprised you? I think that the extent of the divisions and how far they've gone back was revealing even to me. I hadn't quite appreciated how many of the current conflicts that we see either in the Blair Brown period or more recently Corbyn Starmer have been present before. It's almost as if these are patterns which just keep on asserting themselves. And I think that does tell you something about the institutional structure of the party and its culture. Although Labour's changed obviously enormously in the last hundred years, partly reflecting economic change and the change in the nature of class, in many ways the culture of the party, its tendency towards conflict and sectarian division hasn't really changed. And I think that is obviously really striking. I also think, though, that perhaps shifting from being an advisor to a Labour leader and Prime Minister to being, in a sense, a grassroots party member obviously changes your perspective. (laughs) And I think one of the comments we make in the book is that in the Blair-Brown period, while the early period of modernisation was in many ways productive, because, of course, it led to the victory in 1997, there was not enough emphasis on 
cultivating a culture in the party where members could genuinely participate. And also there was not enough toleration of internal disagreement. Because again, a point we make in the book is that if Labour is going to advance its ideas and develop its programme, then there has to also be some scope for disagreement. You have to argue to clarify your ideas. And if argument is always being clamped down on, if there's always attempts to use party management tools to try to stop debate, as did happen at many Labour conferences when I was working (laughs) for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, then I think ultimately that can weaken the culture of the party and actually make it more difficult to put forward a kind of convincing policy perspective. That is a lesson for me that I take from my own time that I think Labour needs to think about now. It has to have the right culture of internal party participation and deliberation. Okay. And just lastly, you were part of that new Labour period. Mm. Some sort of criticise Summer for being reheated Blairism and some praise him for taking sort of some of the best aspects of the New Labour sort of leadership. What do you think of that? Do you think this is an echo of New Labour or do you think he's proposing something new? I think Keir Starmer is definitely trying to be his own leader. He's not, I think, simply reproducing the New Labour playbook of the 90s and nor could he because obviously events are very different. Mm. I think particularly post-Britain's exit from the European Union, the politics of the UK have changed, the electoral map has been redrawn. There are so many new um, issues that a Labour leader has to deal with, not least the fact that Labour have now is in a very weak position in Scotland, which was certainly not the case when um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were at the helm of the party. But clearly Keir Starmer is trying to learn some of the lessons, the need to position Labour as being a mainstream party that can appeal across the whole country, the need for an alliance between the more traditional working class supporters of the party and the middle class, the need to put forward a message that's economically credible, particularly on tax. These are lessons that Starmer may be interpreted as learning from New Labour. But again, as we say in the book, when Labour has won in 1945, 1964, 1997, there are commonalities to its winning programme, that ability to speak to the whole country, to be economically credible, and also to have a genuine programme of progressive social reform. I think these are all the lessons from history in terms of when Labour's been successful. Okay, thank you so much for coming in. And that book is out now, Labour's Civil Wars, How Infighting Has Kept the Left from Power and What Can Be Done About It. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.